Hello, this is another episode of the Golden Age of Serial Murder. I'm Toby, and with me is Simeon. That's right. In episode two, we discussed serial murder as a figure exterior to society, a werewolf or a vampire, a monster believed to either be made by curses or black magic, or one degenerated into a bestial state in isolation from society. In episode three, by contrast, this is going to be about how monsters and the quality of monstrousness itself can develop within societies and how and why this manifests in particular times and places and specific ways which haunt us today. We'll be introducing a theory which will be foundational to this podcast series in our attempt to explain the massive boom in serial killing in the post-war United States. And we'll be traversing several centuries to explore the historical forces that led to it and to make a few comparisons to uh, specifically uh, to, to one other country period of time shortly before that. But while our focus will soon be on the 20th century, we will begin this episode just about where we left off in episode two in the late medieval period, where in parallel and partially related to the spate of werewolf killers and trials was the German Inquisition, period instigated by a man named Heinrich Kramer, who while not technically a serial killer, was every bit as sadistic and depraved as any murderer we will cover in this series, and one whose actions uh, not only led to the torture and execution of tens, if not hundreds of thousands, but who played an outsized role in the development and institution of sexual sadism in society, legitimated under the auspices of church edict. And sexual sadism is something that is key to understanding uh, serial murder. Before the Marquis de Sade, for whom sadism is named, before he would ever consign his fantasies to the page was a period of escalating unimaginable cruelty which planted the diabolical seed of sadism in the collective unconscious of Western society, which, which continues to bear malignant fruit to this very day. So um, before we continue, I will also say this episode is going to be very, you know, if you, it's going to be very graphic and there's going to be some, if you have a particular issue with animal cruelty, you know, we're not going to get any more in depth than we need to, but it, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. So I guess we're starting off with the German Inquisition. This is a period in history, this is after the Spanish Inquisition, that had happened pre previous to it. And the Spanish Inquisition featured a lot of the same cruelties institutionalized by a decree of, of royalty and you know, conducted by both church and secular authorities. But the thing about the German Inquisition that's different is that Spanish Inquisition was about political and religious conflict. It was a, it was a the, the, the main purpose was to uh, kick out Jews and 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 uh, Muslims to unify Spain, uh, specifically with you know under the the unitary rule of the Catholic Church and the and the Spanish monarchy to, and and uh, was conducted specifically with a very distinctly racial uh, view. The idea of blood purity was key to you know to that, and of course you see this later in Nazi Germany. But the thing that's different about the German Inquisition, which happened a century after, is that because of of a particular infamous book that was written uh, called uh, the Malleus Maleficarum in, in Latin, which translates in English to the Hammer of the Witches. It, for that reason, it, it, it had a particular character of, um, of sexually motivated cruelty towards women. It was, it was the, the, the Malleus Maleficarum was written by Heinrich Kramer and uh, Joseph Springer, these two um, friars. And the ostensible purpose of this book 
was to was to uh, identify uh, witches by marks on their body, by the devil's mark. The way this was this was a very thin cover for basically the the you know a handbook dictating the the uh, the torture, uh, humiliation, and consequent murder of largely of women, but also of, sus- of suspected male uh, warlocks and werewolves. Simeon, I think we should introduce uh, Heinrich Kramer just a little further. So Heinrich born in the town of of Lower Alsace, situated 26 miles uh, southwest of Strasbourg. At the age of very young, he entered the order of the, 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 the Saint Dominique. And so remarkable was his genius. As, at the early age as a young man, he was appointed to the position of the priory of the Dominican house in his native town. He was a preacher general and a master of sacred theology, uh, known for two distinctions in the Dominican order. At some date before 1474, he was appointed an inquisitor for Tyrol, Strasbourg, Bohemia, and Moravia. His eloquence in the pulpit and his tireless activity received due recognition of Rome. For many years, he was the spiritual director of the great Dominican Church of Strasbourg and the right hand of the Archbishop of Strasbourg, a maleficent prelate who praised him highly in a letter which is still existent the winter and the winter of 1485 Kramer had already drawn up a learned instruction on the treatise on the subject of, of witchcraft uh, this circulated the manuscript and is in, almost in its entirety is actually incom- incorporated into the uh, Malefius um, Malucarum yeah and, and, and you know from what I read about him I'm not necessarily his genius may have may have been great but he was viewed by local authorities and the people in general uh, in, uh, in that in that area as being overzealous to the point of frightening and off-putting w- when describing the methodology and 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 of the necessity and the, the importance of uh, identifying and hunting um, witches, warlocks, and werewolves. That he he was uh, he would get visibly excited and unhinged uh, in the eyes of some. Uh, and that it was a little, he was a little, he was too extreme both in his ideas and in his mannerisms for many people, even of that time, even within the the, the church in Germany. But that even as this was so, he was able to uh, to achieve incredible influence because while his his methodology, um, his 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 extremism was was initially rejected in the area, he got the, the approval of the one person who counted, which was the Pope. So he went, so he was, when he was rebuked by some of the local officials, he left and he went, he traveled to Rome and he, uh, and he had an audience with the Pope, Pope Innocent VIII. And from what I've read of Pope Innocent VIII, he was someone who was said to have been easily influenced. I think he wanted there to be a, um, he wanted to be known for, for, for a particular auspicious action for his 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 his, uh, his time as pope and kramer managed to sell him on the dire threat posed by witches and werewolves even though no one else outside of a, outside of him and a few others seemed to think it was quite to the, to the level of importance that he did but i think when you also look at at the, at, at uh at, at this one of the dark things about the church at the time, and this isn't an indictment on the Catholic Church specifically. It's it, anytime there's an influence of money, St. Peter says the root of all evil. Anytime there's a, there, there's there's the influence of money and institutional insulation, 
if there's someone who's given to to sadistic you know sadistic instincts and proclivities the 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 most expedient and reliable and insulated way to make that happen at that time was not to be a crazy farmer or permit in the woods or even a a magistrate but was it was to 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 uh, if you were not born into royalty to to get a position as a friar and it was also a, a great opportunity for someone who was a, a man of letters a man of talent in, in that area uh, but who may not have been born into royalty although in many cases having coming from some level of money was a way to to buy influence patronage and insulation for a family member say a son who may have not been functional with women or may have may not have been as marriageable. Although in the case of Kramer, I don't know if that has anything to do with it. That is certainly to do with it with a lot of other cases that you see going back. And unfortunately, the the church and, and associated judicial operations was overrun by this periodically. And you see this in France in the in the 18th century as well, the infamous Loudon trials. So you know it isn't it isn't unique to 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 Germany in the in the in the I think 16th century, but it is it is something that that I think had a pronounced effect on the German psyche and the psyche of the West. And and so what ends up happening is is that the Malleus Maleficarum becomes um, a not exactly official text. I mean, there were other texts of the time, like King James the First, his book Demonology, which was a not quite as focused on sexually abusing women, but they, it does become of common usage. And there is, and, and a lot of these, you know, inquisitions are kind of semi-official. So, so what ends up happening is, is that, they, you know, under the legitimating auspices of the church, you have, um, you, you have, in many inquisitions that pop up in different towns and municipalities, and there are different things in, in, in play in each one. But in general, what happens is, is that you have, you have uh, an escalating series of accusations. And sometimes this, this, was, um, this was perpetuated by the fact that if you could, according to some of the laws in, in some of the principalities that were affected by this, you, you could have, um, you could you could end up losing your all your holdings, forfeiting all your property if you were accused and then tortured into a confession. And obviously, that means if you want to take something from someone, you can accuse them of being a witch or a warlock, and then the the process is that they'll eventually, you know, admit their guilt under torture. And so there was an aspect of uh, institutionalized corruption in this, as well as the opportunities it presented for sadistic. Uh, fantasies being uh being conducted in public and um and uh, also the uh specific hatred of uh, of women as well um, yes. in this. um you have to go go to kramer himself uh, actually before he wrote the uh the malacarum at the time as uh Simeon, as you as you said when the bishops in, in local area were stopping his worst successes he tried to interrogate a woman named Helena Schubrin in Innsberg and 13 others uh, citizens accused of witchcraft. Helena herself, uh, married to a, a prosperous burger named Sebastian, was described as an aggressive, independent woman who was not afraid to speak her mind. Right after Kramer had arrived in the city, she'd passed him in the street, spat and cursed him in public. 
calling him an evil monk and uh obviously he and he interrogated her um and 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 took it further into the witch trials but again he was pushed back against until as you've said simian he was able to get um the malefus mericarum uh, indoctrinated and that document is specific uh specifically um misogynistic um the instructions upon be being given into custody suspected witches are to be stripped naked and their heads shaved and they are then to be searched especially in their most secret places that cannot be named it's impossible to not take from that the obvious conclusion that the malleus maleficarum was uh itself sexually motivated that it was that it was uh itself a handbook and a, a for sadism and a repository of sadistic fantasies and with just the thinnest veneer of of um you know theology or um or or uh, superstition or whatever you want to say that 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 you know that it was useful you know it's it, it was a, a controversial uh um document even at the time there were many who who thought who thought it was you know exactly what we would say it would be but i think it in the absence of other ways of doing things and because it created the no holds barred opportunity for both sadism towards women and opportunism when it came to claiming property in within the law you have this thing you have you have this this what happens is is that those who desire to use it, such as Kramer and other friars and magistrates and judges, it unleashed a, I mean, a miniature, I mean, I, I say this is, you know, I don't think there's, there's any, there's, there's any uh, term that's strong enough for, for what this was. And it was, you know, uh, Vron, Peter Vronsky in Sons of Cain, you know, re references the, the, the term genocide, which was common among uh, feminist historians. I don't think that's over the top in this. And in some ways, it's a little bit of a miniature Holocaust. I say that as someone of Jewish descent. I don't think that's that's too much to say because in some towns, I read that it got so out of hand that it that nearly every woman in the town was killed. I mean, it, wow. it, it just swept through, and uh, because when you have this kind of thing, it escalates. You torture someone; they're going to name a bunch of other names. Then they're going to be tortured and name and 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 to confess it, and then. In the meantime, and this is also going to involve men because men being the pro property holders, they're going to be accused of things that someone else wants their wants their uh, uh, land or their holding. So, so um, until uh, the the laws in Germany were changed so that that didn't happen, it continued to pace not just due to due to the torture of women, but due to uh, due to uh, greed and corruption, um, and it was like a perfect combustible mixture. I just want to add a, a couple of examples here. This is not for the faint-hearted, of course. Yes. Um, bizarre gynecological probes and torture implements were applied uh, to female parts. The, the pale and, and iron pear-shaped uh, dildos were used. Um, Red-hot pincers were used to tear off flesh. And a spider and a sharp iron fork-like clamp was especially designed to tear away um other female parts this was now uh, this is as raw as it as it gets in terms of uh, sadism and a specific uh sadistic event that is i think is 
different in the history of the Inquisition and specific to Germany. Yeah, and, and I think what you see and why this is so important to what the story we're telling is you see in some ways the, the seed being planted that would germinate of, you know, of this unrestrained, unspeakably bar barbaric sexual sadism within socially sanctioned in some ways in society. And so it wasn't just that there's some monster living in the woods that becomes the subject of, of horror. But what this is in some ways a more intimate and far more troubling thing because it's within society. It's, with, it's, with, it's, it's within the, the most hallowed institutions in society. And when you look at, at, at dark currents within the collective unconscious, within a society's culture, you look at stuff like this because this is something that manifests in both in, in, in sexuality in all manner of ways in the West. That's something Vronsky talks about, that, you, that we, have, we have criminal sadists of all kinds um, you know, who still, who, who, who still do what they do, in some ways an imitation of this. And then also you have the beginnings of what we think of as, you know, the, uh, you know, sort of kinky uh, S&M type sexuality is in some ways a sublimation of this into more, you know, pro-social, you know, less harmful, but still in some ways troubling because it's still our, our, our society trying to come to terms with it, with the reality that this, you know, that this happened and that this happened, and this was conducted by the leaders of society in many ways, by the, the people who you would normally trust the most, by, you know, monks and confessors and priests, magistrates, judges uh, against the innocent. And uh, it's something that, you know, um, that in many ways is, is echoed in the writings of the Marquis de Sade in the 18th, 18th century, uh, where in his, in his, uh, in his works, in his most infamous works, take place in Germany. And they have the leaders of society kidnapping people and doing terrible things to them in sort of escalating very strictly mapped out patterns. And, and in, in many ways, I, I think that's rooted in the, in, in the German Inquisition and some of the other associated events of the time. And it's particularly how so many, of, so how we, we has left such an imprint about, for instance, torture taking place in dungeons using these implements that, are, that, that do specifically, uh, you know, tear apart the sex organs of women. And it's something that is essential to understanding, um, you know, basically the, the, the darkness that, is, that, manif that manifests itself in, in Western society going forward. I, I, in some ways also, you, would, you might look even earlier than this, uh, specifically with regards to Germany, because during the Black Plague, which a few centuries before, one of the things that eventually led to was you had these bands of uh, people called flagellants. And this had happened. This was the case in various societies, and they would go around whip, publicly whipping themselves and abasing themselves to, you know, to seek to seek absolution. And that they, these were not church authorities; these were kind of their own thing. But in Germany, this got particularly extreme, and involved monks and nuns, and it was very, very, very morbid and debauched. And also in Germany at the time, um, you had particularly extreme um, reaction against Jews. And, and so the picture you get here is that you have the German Inquisition, you have some things happen in the Black Plague, and how these things come back later and manifest in Germany, in the, it, particularly in, in its full 
apex in the in 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 the uh, the Holocaust and the death camps in in uh, in Nazi Germany, but in, along the way in other in other ways. And so I think the thing is is that all these things are they're important for their time, but they also really stuck in the in in the collective psyche of of, of Western societies. And they and and you can't understand I think even what happens in the United States without uh, in the post war post World War II era without looking back on the history of how these you know these things were done in society because it it it, it never fully goes away. Oh no, absolutely. So uh, one of the other things, you know, this is this is a good way to lead into a a. Into, into some of the, the ideas that we're going to try to uh, use to to explain the post-war serial killing boom and within a historical context. And you'll be introducing an idea that, I, that is that is very key to what to, uh, to to the theory to our sense of what may have been the reason for why things were happening. And it is uh, it's in Peter Vronsky's Sons of Cain. Uh, we will, I promise, be using other sources. As the series goes on, but this is one of the key sources, and he introduces an idea, which I think he did not create. I think it was created by anthropologist uh, Simon Harrison. I think it is, but it's it, it, they, the it's an idea with the the, the diabolus in cultura. That's a fancy sounding term, which basically means the devil in the culture, and it's taken from. It's in reference to something called diabolus in musica, which if you were the devil's tritone. If so, if you're familiar with classical music or the first Black Sabbath album, there's this famously this connection of notes. It goes do do do, and it was these notes are very eerie sounding. It was believed for a time that if you played those notes in that succession, it could summon the devil, and so it was outlawed to play those notes. And uh, that's no longer the case, but it was once the case. And the idea, and they use that term. Here to, because the idea is that there is a convergence of several notes, so to speak, in a society, several, several conditions that individually are not necessarily determinative. But when you put them together, when you put them together, they sort of, they, they become, they open the door, they open this dark door, you know, uh, sort of like the witching hour. Uh, it, there, there's a particular the convergence that happens at that uh, that unleashes something in society that was dormant, that existed, but was dormant. And it, it, and Vronsky's theory is that this is something that that happened. This is this is in large part something that happens due to a due to the, the primary cause of it being the trauma uh, of war and particularly the the uh, the effects of war that unleash what we talked about in the last episode. The 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 ancient primitive aspects of, of man when we were at our when we were a basically very violent and bestial and in war uh, people in, in prison it's kind of similar too people the, the civilization is stripped away and and all you and all that's left is a no holds barred need to defeat your enemies by any means necessary and that this has an effect on the psyche of people who fight in this and on their descendants Vronsky believes very much that this is one of the things that led to the serial killing boom in the 1970s and 80s in the United States. But it's also worth taking a look at the various things, the historical 
antecedents before that, like, like such as the German Inquisition and some of the, the ways that, we, that were built to that, and also to make comparison points. And um, so one of those comparison points, which we will get to, is uh, Germany in the Weimar era, but we, we will get to that eventually. <clears throat> Do you have any thoughts on the Diabolos theory, Toby? Yeah, so, you know, I think with uh, the anthropologist uh, and with Ronsky as well, I think when we're trying to work out what causes serial killing, there's, there's this, like we talked about in, in the previous episode, there's so many different theories around people's childhoods, around their psychology, their biology. I think this is really an attempt to figure out why specific cultures at specific times pop up and burst out. And then you get not only maybe uh, extreme high levels of crime, or you might get sort of narrow levels of crime, but specifically graphic incidents. And people just don't know why these things happen. And with the baby boom generation and with the people who were born during World War II, you know, World War II is this great war. Um, it's not like World War One. People, are, there's not a lost generation. There isn't a lost generation paraphernalia. It's, it's a great war. It's fought in, you know, in, in our terms in Western history as, as a virtuous war. But there are fissures caused by the war that some people think have led to an increase in serial killing, which some people would look at as like, wait, why is that happening? Why are you making that connection? But it is clear that many of the people, many of these notorious serial killers raised in the post-war periods, increasingly hitting the, the critical age of 28 in the 1970s uh, and into the 1980s, uh, or a little bit older than that, were born around this period. And so, and so what one would have to say, well, what is particularly special about these young people? They weren't, they didn't fight in the war. There isn't a, a glut of veteran murderers that's enter into the culture in, in, that, in that period, didn't fight in the war. They were related to people who had fought in the war. And the question always is asked is like, what, why did this happen? And I think by taking an explanatory approach where you could pick out certain very specific things to that period we're all trying to figure out why and i think like this is the process uh, of figuring out why is 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 a continuing process that's the criminal theorists and podcasters like us and, and investigators have been doing for for a really long time and, and i think the divorce in culturum theory is a really interesting theory because we look at what actually happened in the war. You know, there's, there's this increase in in uh, rapes on the Western Front, especially in France, between uh, American soldiers and, and, and French women. There's obviously the the increase in, in rape in the on the Eastern Front, and then on the Pacific Front, there were what many people have seen as a quite graphic and grisly race war that took place between the Japanese and the Americans, where many American POWs took body parts of, of the Japanese. And, and many of these body parts, uh, and including skulls, are, are turning up any, everywhere, at um, uh, in, in not only people's houses, but in 
car boot sales all around America. And that kind of graphic yeah, yeah. horror is being filtered down to the, the, the to the young, younger people who are seeing their their fathers uh, and um and i think i think that gets at why this diabolical single term theory is 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 really interesting and i think a, a, even a more direct um factor of this is the growth in adventure stories and adventure magazines that have quite graphic bondage related content and and had stories that were themed were had some war war themes and were invest uh, investigation stories but also had the seeping in of these these rape fantasies in the western front and the and the carnage and the torture on 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 the the pacific front seeps into some of these magazines and, and then they, they diffuse into the sub the growing suburbia um that was created by the ggi pro pro program for a lot, a lot of people and it's the 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 children the offspring of 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 these uh, war veterans who are who are who are growing up in this uh sort of social context and, and, and environment there are a few things that come out of that i mean one of the things that something clearly happened particularly on the eastern front i mean the Jap it is worth noting that the Japanese uh, were uh, notoriously cruel to prisoners themselves, so it was certainly not one-sided. But there's something happened that really that really unleashed something very primitive and debased. When you when you think of you know you think you think of 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 of, of the way that they they took noses and ears and heads, or you know the 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 um, particularly cruel and merciless uh, way that the Japanese American soldiers treated each other. You know, one thing I've read about it is is how um, how you've seen some of, you know, you've seen, uh, you know, children and even grandchildren of that generation find stashes of those body parts in, in the home of a, re, you know, uh, you know, as the, as that generation is, you know, final members, that generation is dying of old age, you, you know, they've been finding these things stashed away in their homes and horrified by them. They're putting them in, you know, they turn up in lakes, they turn up in, you know, in, in other, in rivers there's it's still something we're dealing with and one of the other things i think that 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 Vronsky was getting at here is there's this, there's a dissonance that really informs the that that the, the pathological development of you know deviant minds and serial killers especially which is you know just like you have this hypersexuality that is birthed in a society and in this this tech boom the the age of television the age of you know the the sudden proliferation of this new mass culture after World War II, combined with a sort of a of repression and social rules that from from previous uh, generations' norms. Similarly, you also have that whole thing with the war. You have the the dissonance between the terrible experiences um, that their parents saw, the terrible things that they saw and didn't talk about for the most part. There's a um, there's a song by Drive By Truckers uh, uh, where Patterson Hood, the songwriter, talks about his his uncle, I think it was, who 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 was at Iwo Jima, and how he would go with his uh, song. The song's called Sands of Iwo Jima, and he and he would travel with him to meet his war buddies, and he would just watch them, just look at each other and nod and barely say anything. That's all they needed to do. There was nothing you could say, and in general, what people saw in World War II, they might not have participated in, but they saw it and it affected them. And then you have this narrative, this simple narrative where 
we came in and saved the day and it was a war uh, uh, for, uh, that represented the triumph of the good against evil. And there is truth to that. When you look at Imperial Germany, you look at Nazi Germany, these were, as Vronsky makes no bones about it, these, these were regimes that had to be beaten by any means necessary. But at the same time, this narrative has no room for terrible things that we did and also for the, 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 uh, the traumatized, the scarring of the soul that this had and people were just expected to be normal. So you have this expectation to be normal, these, these rules, this placid surface of post-war America contrasted with the effects of this stuff and, you know, and, and the, the kind of the resolution to that dissonance, to that you know, senseless um, uh, situation is, does indeed come out in these, these, uh, these adventure, said adventure stories, but you know, pulp magazines, detective magazines, and very similar to how the German Inquisition ended up affecting um, the West, Western culture in Germany, specifically with its, you know, imprinting on, on it this, this, uh, these images of women being tortured in dungeons, this idea of, you know, dungeon pornography coming out of that, this, all this stuff, in, in, in much the same way, you had um, stuff from World War II represented in eroticized violence and in the desire to go and brutalize uh, people in, in the way that, that, that was done in World War II. And it's, I don't think, I think part, a big part of the problem that, that it was is that there wasn't room that made for both the idea of a heroic victory and for the idea of um, that this was inevitably just causing an incredible amount of uh, psychological scarring for the people who came home and for subsequently for the, for the world that, that would grow out of that. And, uh, and unfortunately, no room was made for both of those. And that's, I think, part of what one of the things that, that, that leads to this uh, diabolical convergence that Vronsky talks about. Okay, I can see, like, the, the magazine's covers featured, like, you know, garish images of women bound, battered, uh, with headlines like soft nudes with the Nazis, Dr. Horror, Hitler's hideous harem of agony, grisly rites of Hitler's monstrous flesh stripper. I can understand viscerally how this could affect people, but it is quite a conservative um, explanation, isn't it? Because it's like, well, you know, those bad video games like Manhunter oh, yeah. causes people to kill people. You know, I'm not yeah. on that aspect. I'm not completely sold. I can see. I can see how you can go from that to um, to, to the fantasies, and and also how it can lead to a negative perspective on women. Uh, but I'm not completely sure. You know, I I do see this as quite a conservative explanation. It might be right, but it is quite conservative, I think. Well, I think I think it I think it depends on you know the the whole thing. Like for instance, with video games, that was never proven to have uh, you know, yes. And and I think the thing with these is in part, as I said, the, the you have a dissonance that that's not resolved. You have the heroic victory in World War II and the effects. You have hypersexuality and repression and rules from previous iterations, these things, when you don't have some synthesis, some middle point that, or, or some uh, explanation that, that uh, resolves them, then you end up, you can have problems. Um, 
Roy, he was Roy Hazelwood, who was, who was the top sex crimes guy in the FBI in the 1970s. He said that he, he thinks that there should be government-funded program to get a Playboy magazine subscription to every boy at the age of 13. I think it was sort of a joke, but he might have been quite literal because his thought was healthy sexual development um, is, you know, is something that is going to head off something deviant. I think the thing with the, the, the detective magazines that was a problem and with those kind of pulp magazines is more that they were ubiquitous and everywhere, but in a way that wasn't really explained. In a way that, and, and so it wasn't, and, and, and what you had is the, the concern that I think, and it is conservative in the, in, in the sense that it is, um, you know, it, it, is, it is a conservative point, but there's a particular uh, time period in, in, in the development of sexuality with, with uh, boys. That it, that in which in which lots of different things can end up having a an effect which sets someone on a particular course. So it's not so much that those things were in circulation, or that adults are reading them, um, as much as that they were, as he said, right next. You'd have you'd have a a detective magazine with a picture of a bound, terrified woman right next to Better Homes and Gardens. You have. 10, 11 year old kids at the, you know, at, at the drugstore seeing that. And there, there is a, or even younger, and in some cases, not in, not in many cases or most cases, in some cases, this can um, fuse with something in their psychodevelopment in a very bad way. So I think it was more that, that there wasn't any real social uh, attempt as a society to deal with those things. It just, just sort of, the general operative principle in the post-war era was, you know, see, uh, see no here, see no evil, hear no evil. It was just, you know, just let's just be polite and tranquil and keep this thing going and try to pretend that we didn't just have this terrible, terrible trauma in World War II, and we've got this prosperity. We won. We are ascendant, and I think that it's 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 not so much that those things should never exist or should never be allowed to circulate. It's that they did so in a way which was um, kind of like a um, secret fantasy, something that was that was not talked about, that that sort of festered in the shadows. And, and I think there's a lot to be said for the idea of secrecy being toxic because then, you know, not privacy, but secrecy, because then certain things grow and develop in ways that they, they maybe they, they, they shouldn't. And, and if they would have dealt with it in a, in a kind of an honest and effective way, it might have been it might have been different. But it is true. I mean, I don't know how much you can how much you can emphasis you can put on any one particular thing. A lot of the explanations for serial killing in true crime are fairly conservative. Actually, Vronsky is one of the least conservative writers I've seen in true crime in terms of who he cites. But in general, I mean, it's it, it is it is it is a, a um, a genre that does tend to invite conservative explanations, um, and uh, although we'll, we'll get into all manner of, of of possible explanations, and this is just one theory, um, but one thing about this theory is is that it manifests and it, it can be seen to manifest in different ways. Because um, I think a lot of what you look at the post-war America, you you look at the history of the West and how it's informed the United States. Um, you know, going by the way back to the German Inquisition and the Black Death. But it, it the way you can you can apply the theory it manifests in different ways. Basically, in in, in the, the theory in the post-war U.S. is that you have this trauma 
and this this from the war and the idea that the war opened up this wormhole to our primitive past and and uh, and then you mix that with hypersexualization in the culture and repression you know then those things are not and, and then and then the 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 all the the, the changes in, the, in in mass communication that are opened up and you have all these things to come together and um, that that's the theory with that and you could you could look at other places and times as being uh, analogous. And we're gonna look at uh, Weimarer Germany as being one that's analogous. You also have the presence of World War I. You have um, another a war, arguably, it's at least as senseless and horrible as World War II. And then you have, you have uh, a, re a restive, unsatisfied population after that. And you have you know, rural-urban divides and all manner of other things that you could you could look at different convergence models because you do have an explosion of serial killing at the time. But before that, um, it's important to also look at some of the other, some of the things in previous centuries that 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 uh, helped explain how we uh, understood crime. Because in the late Middle Ages, it's understood uh, as a a uh, supernatural. Uh, the problem with demonic influence, uh, black magic, um, curses, uh, for, you know, um, so, but um, in, in subsequent centuries, you start, the way you start to understand these things changes, and that, and that also deepens our understanding of it, because I'm not entirely sure there isn't something to be said about the supernatural. I'm not, I, I tend to, you know, I'll remain agnostic on that for the purpose of this podcast, but when you look at at, uh, at, at, in the 19th century, you start to see a different um, uh, model. You see, there are a couple of things that change. I first busy want to return to, to the, uh, to the um, sorry, where are we here? Yeah, so in the 19th century, you, you have, you, what's introduced is this idea um, of insanity as being something, as being a medical issue distinct from from the from what was previously believed to be you know the supernatural influence and you you have theories of insanity that become very influential in the 20th centuries and theories also of 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 clinical deviance and sexuality and um we've mentioned in, and this is going to be a very a very common topic the question of psychopathy the or, or you know clinicians prefer any social personality disorder but i think when you look at the, the Victorian era's concept of insanity, it was a little bit too expansive. They were too given to lobotomizing people or removing women's sexual organs because of hysteria or things like that. There were terrible problems with it. But I think one of the interesting things about this period is you have the concept uh, first discussed in, 19, in 1835 um, by a, a, a British clinician of moral insanity. And the, the physician James Cowles Pritchard and um, he and he he coined this term and described it in a way that's going to become very familiar with the killer, particularly one killer we talk about today, and with kill, killers across the spectrum. And he describes, in quote, he said, described moral insanity as quote madness consisting in a per morbid perversion of the natural feelings, affections, inclinations, temper, habits, moral dispositions, and natural impulses, without any remarkable disorder or defect of the interest or knowing and reasoning faculties, and particularly without any insane illusion or hallucinations. So someone who's not schizophrenic, 
or psychotic and you know like some killers are and and someone who is um not mentally disabled but appears to have a a, a, de a deeply profoundly disordered uh relation to their emotions particularly as it as it relates to other people and that is what we now know of as uh, psychopathy and uh, psychopathy is not, as I said, a preferred diagnosis. They, uh, clinicians prefer an antisocial personality disorder. But the problem with that is that just describes a series of longstanding behaviors. Whereas actually what is being discussed here, and you see this with the most you know, extreme criminals, and I suspect you would see that with some of the people involved in the German Inquisition as well, in the Spanish Inquisition, is a lack of appreciation for the gravity of, the, of what they do for the gravity of the harm and the suffering that is done to other people. And with serial killers, there's a, a general pattern you see where they will acknowledge what they've done intellectually, but they'll say something like, for instance, John Wayne Gacy said that, you know, I don't that he didn't understand why people put, were putting such an emphasis on his sex life was 5% of, of, of his life. But the other 95%, he was out there hustling and doing stuff. And, you know, the 5%, of course, involved the abuse and torture and murder of, uh, of, of young boys. I mean, but to him, that was that, that's just 5% of what I'm doing. So he could, you know, or, or lots of these guys, they, they, they lack what was observed going back into the 19th century was a particular disorder of the mind. And in previous centuries, it would have been described as demonic interference or black magic or proceeding from that. But in the 19th century, you start to see it as a medical individuated phenomenon. And that also helps you um, see it as a human phenomenon and therefore as a social phenomenon as well. Um, and um, it's that kind of, and, and, to, and you know, around the same time, in 1886, you have a Psychopathia Sexualis, uh, uh, which is a, a, a book by uh, Kraft Ebing, uh, I can't remember. He has like five first names or something, and very long German spelling. And this is a this was a book which was controversial at the time for re reasons that we might not suspect today, because it has very much views on homosexuality, very much of its time. But it was very controversial uh, with the church and some other authorities because it claimed a genetic basis for homosexuality and other forms of deviance. And we now know there's a genetic basis, certainly for psychopathy as well, and. Um, this uh, and 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 these kind of things, things. These were just stepping stones along the way, but these these types of things helped helped us start to understand uh, uh, violent deviation and and crime as a social phenomenon as well as a spiritual phenomenon. Um, and you know, and, and and that that was a distinct change. And I think it also allowed us to to look at some of the things that happened in previous centuries in a different way. And it, is all, and, it is, and it is primarily the, one of the things that led into the 20th century understandings, although they developed quite a bit from there. Um, and uh, and, and uh, the other thing you see in the 19th century that's worth discussing is uh, in the Victorian era, you see the other side, I think, you, we talked about the German Inquisition, how that, how that, uh, caused sexual sadism to be sort of institutionalized and mainstreamed in the collective unconscious through, you know, through socially sanctioned acts. But also the other side of it is when there's repression, 
such as in the Victorian era, it causes those things to pop up as well, particularly in relation to that, because the more something is repressed and not dealt with effectively, the more extreme it gets. Um, and also the more, sometimes there is a desire for something more extreme because it's no coincidence, just as you see in the United States in the post-war era, that in the Victorian era, you have repression, you have rules, you have propriety, and yet you also have the proliferation of all these popular pulp literature that, that depicted, you know, all these fantasies that were kind of like more extreme versions of, you know, the Fifty Shades of Grey stuff, you know, some, some like pirate or, or caveman or, ter or, or, or criminal or some other dangerous man who, who spirits a woman off somewhere and kidnaps her or takes her away. And, and those were, and, and a lot of women bought those things because it was just, it was some sort of forbidden taste of danger in a society that was over controlling and that emphasized propriety, sometimes over, over reality. And um, that's another thing you see uh, mirrored in the post-war era. So in some ways you could look at the post-war era as being a convergence point, not only of its own, uh, of, the, of, of particularly American things at the time, but also of a convergence of history and from the countries that it informed it very much, England, Germany, um, France. And, uh, and of course, there's also its own dark uh, history before um, before, uh, before the country was formed and while the country was formed and, you know, with uh, slavery and the Civil War and stuff like that. But, um, but one thing you can also do is you can apply this model, because if it was, if the United States in the post-war era was the only society, the only society that would seem to, where the diabolus theory of, con of the convergence works, then it might just seem like it's a fluke. But I think you can also look at uh, Germany in the era after World War I, the Weimar Germany, as, a, as, as an interesting comparison point. But Toby, do you think that, tell, tell us something about Weimar Germany. Like what, what was the political context? What was going on uh, there that particularly describes that period in, in Germany? Well, in Germany in, in this period, uh, he's following the devastation, obviously, of uh, World War One. Uh, Germany was, all, you know, just out on its feet. Uh, it was facing a number of social and, and uh, cultural problems. It had hyperinflation, uh, political extremism, uh, the attempts to seizure of power by paramilitary groups, and a number of uh, social problems that it was undergoing at the time. That was really causing this, and um, and Germans were con so concerned about the the rise in homicidal uh, violence. Ger German German criminologists and actually pioneered a lot of uh, interesting statistical ways to analyze crime in the late nineteenth uh, century, and they were seeing that um, not only was there a rise in crime by former com combatants from World War One, but there was a rise in crime from non-combatants, there was a, a feeling of um, that there were a lot of young men were aimless uh, in society and that Germany was seen as a violent society um, by, by ma many, uh, many people. And, uh, and it, it was really seen as a, as a po post-war crisis. Um, uh, it, it was, 
in in newspapers uh, by journalists and a number of articles uh, were, were written and um, and at the time um, th there was an increase in in, in 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 investment in the police to try to deal with the the rise in uh, in crime at, at the time uh, just to give you a, a sort of more exact figure the rate of unpremeditated murders uh, rose uh, immediately above the pre-war le levels in the early um, Weimar Republic's time. The average number of convictions for premeditated murder per year for the entire Reich jumped up um, actually by um, increased to 17 per 100,000. Um, it, it was in, in 1914 and then by the 1919 it was 35 by uh, uh 35 by 100,000 and then by um the 1920 it was uh 0.41 by 100,000 and uh and so it was increasing um steadily uh, it did subside towards the end of the 1920s but there was this clear uh, increase brought on by the 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 war and um, and there was uh, a rise in the notion of um, you know that crime was a really important um, issue in in the society uh, and uh, a number of uh, increases not only in premeditated murder but violence of all kinds and um, yeah it was really uh, seen at the time as a as a really violent society and there was a number of theories that that um, that people were, were putting together to try to um, work out why this was. A number of G German criminologists created a sociological school of German criminology focusing on uh, the significance of the environment. Uh, other rival um, criminologists at the time uh, started to focus on the predominance of uh, what it was like a medico-biological view of uh, crime and the reasons for crime um, going back to uh, Lombroso uh, the 19th century uh, famous 19th century criminologist focusing much more on criminals as different from the rest of society in Germany there, there was a rising focus uh, as the sociological score kind of subsided a rising focus on that criminals were different from other people they possessed uh, not only genetic but physical characteristics uh, that would were, were different um, um, there, and so the, the uh, one famous um, German criminologist at the time was named by Theodore uh, Verstein and um, and in, in in Bavaria they designed a a, a biological criminology survey sort of um, so that they would go around to criminals uh, in uh, German prisons, especially in Bavaria, and then um, run a survey based on specific physical, genetic, and um, what they call termed eugenic characteristics to try to figure out why specific people were different from uh, other people and whether or not they had a, a almost like a biological predominance towards not only violence but uh, things like murder and uh, and uh, and other kinds of um, very serious uh, sexual crimes that were, were happening 
at the time, but obviously also at the time there was some pushback, some criticism towards. Yeah, you can um, really see where, where that came from, you know, how that, that could connect to something like phrenology or are these, these very simplistic and, and, and very, very often completely debunked ideas. Yeah, ideas that would lead into the Nazi period itself. Yeah, yeah very, very obviously dangerous ideas when taken in particular directions. And, and it is, it is, it's interesting how sometimes there's, there's two steps forward, one step back, because some of these things, there, it is certainly the case that genetics has a great deal of influence, but looking at it in particular body parts and you know, the size of particular body parts or the shape, that, that, that doesn't quite work, particularly because the brain, the human brain is, is complex and it's individual in some ways, but in general, it's about the same size and it's not, <laughs> it doesn't really, I mean, sometimes some brains are bigger, but it, that doesn't necessarily mean a lot. It doesn't really, and the development of the brain is very, still to this day very mysterious. The difference between the brain and the mind, you know, whether if there's a difference in just cognitive processes and whatever mysterious uh, things go into in, into decision making, it's hard to say. And that's that's one of the main questions that people have when they look at people who go down the dark path: is how 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 responsible are they for it? But you know, I think of I think of the, the German preoccupation of crime at the time. I've heard that it was that even if there was a spike, and there certainly was a spike in serial killing, that it does speak a lot, it was still, it speaks a lot to the sense of fear and anxiety and insecurity about the society when you have that much of an obsession with crime. I mean, I think part of the reason why true crime is so popular today in the United States is because we have a great deal of insecurity in, in this country about our, ourselves, about each other, about society. You see one of the really popular genres of fiction has to do with post-apocalyptic stories, whether it's with zombies or with the collapse of society, you know, the purge movies, you know, people, you know, you looked at how, how some of the things that happened during the pandemic were kind of like that. You had people hiding in their house, other people beating the crap out of each other in the streets. But I also think that when you have that obsession with it, 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 it tells you sometimes more about how people perceive things rather than necessarily the reality. In general, when people talk about serial killing, it's a it's a recent term, and the Germans came up with it in their in their own language before uh, before the British or the United or, or, or the Americans. But it's generally thought of it as an industrial phenomenon because you could say that the same energies in serial killing were present in the German Inquisition or in certain wars and and, and, and periods and the plague and stuff. But it's normally described within the context of the post-industrial era. And yet, when I look at Germany. One of the things that strikes me is, and then Germany is a, I mean, it's it's a it's fairly recently one country. It was used to be several states and principalities, you know. Um, but a lot of this look, when I looked at the killers of this era, it does really does, it doesn't seem a great deal different than when we were looking at werewolves and vampires in episode two. You seem a lot see a lot of of rural and urban divide, both in terms of, you know, the the, the cultures of those, but but also in terms of of the of the of the social uh, of the social cohesion elements, the the level of, of alienation of an underclass, a lot of the 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 German serial killers in Weimar era were very prolific, but kind of went under the radar. And what that seems to suggest is that you have a 
large itinerant population or an, or an underclass that's kind of being born. A lot of it was in rural areas. Yeah, so there was, you know, like in Germany, there was this fear after World War One that it was uh, elements, uh, you know, like within the working class that had let Germany down, not only Jews, but um, sort of others and um, lower class people that let Germany down. And there was a focus um, when people were going to the prisons and, and do this, the biological s studies of trying to sort of create a cast of uh, they call it um, corrigibles or incorrigibles, um, people who had some predominance, they figured out they had some predominance to crime, and um, and this was probably because they saw them as, 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 as members of the underclass and they needed to be removed and, and, and things of that nature. But then it was also a fear of, no, you know, sort of what they perceived as normal, everyday, average Germans uh, becoming uh, serial killers as well. I think even uh, with Peter Kirsten, who we're going to talk about um, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit, so there was this this fear that this normal, ordinary trade union worker could become this, you know, this the serial killer. Um, the, the same thing with uh, the werewolf of Hanover, uh, Fritz Harriman in, in 1924, who killed uh, 27 young men. And um, and you know was uh, supposed to be sexually aroused by um, the by biting their, their necks as well. There was this this fear that this 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 someone who was perceived as uh, as an ordinary person. Same thing with Karl uh, Denk, uh, he's a quiet uh, resident of Motzburg who was um, involved in serial killings as well. It's just like there was, was this there. fear. Yeah, I think I think that he was, you know, he was a he was ensconced in society, even though he was a kind of a, a quiet guy. But he was, I think, he he came from one of the Eastern European countries, immigrated, but I'm not sure. And uh, but it's interesting. One of the things about all those killers also is is that there's something. I mean, you can you could overemphasize something like that, but I think there's something in. I don't know if it's in the German imagination of itself or if it's just something that's reported. There's something about in certain rural communities and that goes back this there's a there, there's a kind of a a a a, 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 a a there's a there's a kind of a barbarous quality that comes sometimes either manifests itself in reality or in fear of this you know you see a lot of instances in in in, in small towns in germany of of, of cannibalism um and you, you know there's 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 a lot of stories there's a lot of bestiality uh, in some of these crimes and and this is something you see in in, in history of uh, of crime in, in Germany. I wonder if that kind of reflects that kind of fear of the 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 rural uh, underclass or, or or the working class of them being 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 more um, primitive than other people. You you look at Peter Curtin. He had a, he had the Hitler mustache before it was known as a Hitler mustache because that was a mustache of a younger. I mean I mean sorry not younger of a, a lower. Uh, lower of uh, lower middle class man over a lower class man that was kind of uh that was what was fashionable at the time and you look at you know hot fritz harman uh, and and he and he and he attacked people in the manner similar to what we would describe as a werewolf in episode two and there was all these instances of cannibalism uh at the time in carl dinka and in 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 carl grossman as well that involved them eating body parts but also they would sell body parts made into sausage or just in bags of meat at the market. And you think this sounds crazy. I mean, this is what people, you know, people wanted to eat other people, but that's not necessarily the case. Part of the thing at the time was because of the poverty. 
that, that happened during the, you know, the, the aftermath of the draconian Treaty of Versailles. You know, you had people would be, you know, mothers would be eager to buy a giant bag of mystery meat that was cheap as long as it wasn't rotten. People didn't consider whether it might have been, you know, whatever it was. But there does seem to be, when I've looked at Germany, this kind of the, the, this other side to their culture that is sort of frightening and primitive, but only in rural areas. And it's a strange thing we look at Germany because it was it's, a, it's an incredibly advanced society and culture, but also had this this uh, restive and un, unsatisfied uh, population. I think one interesting thing about about Germany is that if you look at um, newspaper clippings in Britain about Germany, saying in in the eighteen sixties. It was of a almost like simple Bavarian country. Germans were perceived as quite simple, yeah. and then by the eighteen nineties, things have changed completely because they have an industrialization that's faster, quicker, better, stronger, and the and the country changes completely. But the country didn't change completely, did it? That there's that yeah. this latent dynamic of a, of a rural, pastoral, parochial Germany still stays on. And there is a fear of that 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 is there and, and, and it still exists. So, uh, within the Weimar Germany context, um, the, the you know the singular brutality and, and barbarity of some of these crimes, although they were very very small, they were you know there's serial large serial killings, but very very small in terms of the, the population. Yeah, it, it scare people. You know that uh, the Weimar judicial system was failing to protect citizens against the crimes and. And you know the press clippings were everywhere about the werewolf of Hanover, about uh, Peter Curtin, about Carl Dank, and you know it it did really create a a culture of, of fear, despite the 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 fact that it was quite small, and I think probably inspired by the the many fissures within German society at the time. Well, I think what it does is that whenever that you have these sensational cases, they pick up on free floating anxiety in the culture, and this is something you, you'll see particularly. I know growing up, you know, that when there would be a little boy or a girl who goes missing, it just taps into the primordial fear of every parent of their kid, not just disappearing, but being taken by a monster, being taken by a pervert. And it, it changes the culture of the entire region for a time. There was a, you know, there's a, there was a, when I was in middle school, there was a, a little boy named Jeffrey Curley who was, uh, you know, kind of out of central casting, just a you know, Boston Irish freckles kid, baseball player. That was still kind of the, the image we had. <laughs> that was particularly in the '90s. It was still really an Irish town. That still is in some ways. But the thing is, is that that I remember like every mother, like you wouldn't let their kid out of their sight. And the in the city, this is a liberal city. This is a city that prides itself on it, you know its education, even though it's also a what they call, you know, it's also a, a working class college, you know, I think the chalk and cheese, is that what they say in England or something like that. But it's, it, this, this sort of liberal city was ready to tear down the, uh, you know, the, the police department and the prisons just to get at these two guys who did this crime. It was so extreme. So I think when, and, and when you have, you know, criminals who are, who just tear apart people or who, who are cannibals or anything else, it taps into all these fears people can have in the, it, that exist that isn't created by the killer. It, 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 they're tapping into something that already exists, some fear that already exists. And in Germany at the time, it seems like there was there was that that uh, there, there was also uh, obviously something that that surfaced in, in in the Nazi era, this incredible dissatisfaction 
that was, you know, and sense of humiliation that happened after the way the war ended, the way that all the suffering and, you know, uh, loss of life that happened in, in you know, in service of a, of, a, of, a, of a conclusion, which was uh, shameful and pointless to pretty much everyone involved, but particularly the Germans who had to accept total blame for it. And a lot of common people, as well as people in the military, like, you know, Goering and stuff like that, they had this sense of, 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 um, of shame and, you know, dissatisfaction that just gets, that gets uh, piled on and on by the economic problems of the time. And what was Germany, you say it had this, 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 this um, industrial boom that leads up into World War I, but did, so, so was the poverty that is the poverty that happens after World War One. Is that something new, or is that, or, or, or was it, or was the, or was it the, the industrial period, you know, just provide wealth for some and not others? I mean, I don't know, don't know that much about that. Well, you know, the industrial period, obviously, it was, there was a, a significant level of, of inequality, but um, German society reacts far quicker to the threat of the rising urban masses because of the. The you know the the diffusion of a lot of these communist works within Germany created by Germans like uh, Karl Marx and um, Ger Ger the German Socialist Party, the Welfare Party, Dem Democratic Party uh, pushed Bismarck to introduce a number of uh, social services and uh, you know uh, early social welfare. So you know the, the the country in terms of its social provision is actually a little bit better. And um, certainly better than America, but even better than than Britain at the time, and and had a, a significant economic boom, um, given you know given this population that that meant the Germans were as well off as, as almost anyone in the world before the war, but after the war, yeah. the, the the deprivation, the sense of humiliation uh, of, of of Germany, you know, G Germany was trying to finally have its place you know the, you know, the, the carving up of africa and, and this idea of an imperial germany uh, humili humiliating france all of that had been lost and um and and so the, the victim blaming starts and and they they turn towards the jews they turn they turn towards the lower the lower classes and then then there is a, a fixation on race and biology and identity in trying to find out who is good and who is bad through these kinds of pseudo-scientific methods. And, and I think that's what... Um, Verstein... It sounds awfully lot like the German Inquisition, though, doesn't it? Yeah, no, that's what Verstein was um, criticized for. So he was criticized by uh, people like Moritz uh, Lippermann uh, at the Institute of Criminal Law and Penal Policy in Hamburg, who wrote uh, an, an article, you know, widely criticizing his distinction between uh, incorrigible and incorrigible criminals and saying that it really had no real scientific basis and it was just being done sort of slapdash by um, a number of uh, psychiatrists at, at, at these institutions. And again, so you have this this culture that is so fixated on uh, on the, 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 the biological fitness of people. And I think that's, you know, that's that's the that's the real context for even the analysis of uh, serial murder in the period. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's something that I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's it's hard to fully pull apart all the strings, but it's it, but it's surely all these things were in some way inextricably linked within that 
the period and and, and that's 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 a fascinating question and of course I think at this point um, you can get to the the chief uh, the, the chief character that we're that we're uh, that we're going into which which is a serial killer from the Weimar period who for a number of reasons stands out from the others as being a particularly the uh, um, sorry um, it's hard to pull out all the strings but it, I think it's very likely that you can, that all these things were related in some way. And, you know, when you get to, uh, I think the, the central figure of this episode that we've hinted at. Uh, a guy who is just, for a few reasons, is distinguished in being particularly colorful and frightening, even compared to other serial killers of that era. You have to look at, you know, at Peter Curtin. The first thing you have to, you know, when you look at him, the first thing you have to look at, I think, is that he was in a family of thirty. He, he had there were thirteen kids, of which he was one, and and they lived with their parents in, I think, basically a one or two room house. And they had, you know, obviously you have to you have to look at the influence of poverty, but there's so much else going on. And I think it, with him, he's like a a one man diabolus, a one man example of how when you look at the diabolus idea, one of the things I think that's intuitively makes sense about it is that the idea of a society like my environment, Germany, or the post war U.S., where you have a convergence. Of of all these things that together may you know unleashes something, you know, uh, dark and diabolical and dangerous. It kind of maps onto the way most serial killers uh, have been seen to develop, which is that you have this convergence of all these different factors, genetic, um, and you know, nature and nurture, biology, psychology, socialization, everything. All these things come together. In some cases, you can point to one particular thing. And say, well, it's that, or or you can you can say, well, this person was just born bad, or or this person was made entirely that way, like Carl Panzer in the United States, you know, starting with his brain injury. I think he's made into this monstrous killer. But in the case of someone like Curtin, I think it's it's this convergence of everything. Is that your impression of the guy? Well, I th the funny thing about about Peter Curtin is that, you know, we talk about this. Um, you know biology, and um, you know going back to uh, Lombroso and, and and his theories. Peter Curtin was well acquainted with Lombroso. He read read him, and um, and Carl Berg, who who was the um, sort of medical psychiatrist who analyzed him, um, seemed to really understand that there was some level of 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 almost biological difference between Curtin and other people because yeah. he, he did seem to have this this need to kill that 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 uh, Berg could identify in him and and Peter Curtin identified that way as well I mean his environment if we were just to you know um, begin at the start of his life uh, Curtin was born on May the 26th, 1883, into a family 
in the Rhine River Valley, Kirsten's entire family of 13 have lived in one bedroom, one bedroom apartment. His father was a violent man who abused alcohol. Um, he, Peter Kirsten frequently witnessed uh, his father uh, physically assault his mother, including raping her. His father also assaulted his 13-year-old daughter and raped her. And, you know, these were, this was the background of, of, of Peter Kirsten. You know, he was perceived... He would have seen all of it. He would have seen, all of it. He was, uh, seen as a, a good student in school, uh, which is not the first time that's been brought up on, the, on this podcast. No, but <laughs> he became um, acquainted with a man uh, who lived um, in his building, uh, and they became friends, and, and the man uh, taught Peter Curtin how to torture animals. He was a dog uh, catcher, I think. I saw he was that. a dog catcher, yes. He lived in the building, and, and um, uh, the, the activity became a little bit erotic. Um, the two of them apparently used to... You're having some uh, technical problems here. The two, the two of them... Can, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just was I got some notifications said my internet connection is unstable, but right uh, now I'm connected. No, it's alright about it. Um yeah, the two of them um used to uh you know actually have that as part of their own sexual rituals as well. This the, the you know the, the dogs and you know then it, it it gets that's as dark as Peter Curtin's uh youth was, you know. Constantly. Yeah, from bad to worse, even outside of, of any any murders um there is the there's the story that um peter curtin uh when he was very very young um uh, there you know he was in, in the boat with a boy and, and the boy was in the water and he he let uh, a boy drown yeah, yeah he let two two boys drown because one boy in the water another boy jumped in to to, to rescue him and curtin you know i uh, let both of them drown i think he Tried to hold their heads underwater. Is that what it was? Yeah, he he, he tried to hold the, the heads on the water, and allowed them to drown. So, and um, and then his first uh, attempted murder was of a teenage girl, which occurred when he was sixteen. Um, and uh, the attempt, he said, the result of a sudden impulse, he throttled the girl as they went for a walk, and he and he believed uh, she was dead. He did not check ladies and make sure. Uh, his second attempt to strangle a girl ended with her surviving, and um, re he records uh, him saying that, that that's what love love is like. So he, uh, you know, he had from, no positive uh, influence or frame of reference whatsoever. Yeah, no positive influence, frame of reference, and from a very very early age, the the torture, whether it be of animals or of uh, young ladies, was you know part of his you know natural development. We talk about. Um, young boys who were 13 reading these sort of graphic polaroids and magazines and you know developing um fa fantasies that are, that are not normal this is at the far end you know, of the extreme in terms of oh, some for certain personal uh, experience and um and this is actually linked to um you know he, he runs away uh you know very early on from home um, and um, you know, not only is he attempting his his, his first murder, but he's he's running from home. He's he's itinerant. Um, in in nineteen hundred, he's arrested for fraud uh, due to a number of Dusseldorf thefts, 
and the attempted murder of a girl with a firearm. He, he receives uh, four years imprisonment uh, for that. Um, and in, uh, in 1904, he's released. In the summer of 1904, uh, drafted into the Imperial Army, deployed in the city of Metz in Laurel to serve in the 98th Infantry um, Regiment. Um, he actually he leaves the army um, and uh, you know uh, illegally, and then he starts to um, set up a number of fires. Uh, the majority of fires are in barns and haylofts, and um, and later Curtin would admit to the police that he committed around 24 acts of arson upon uh, his arrest and New Year's Eve, and then he's uh, taken to prison. Uh, uh, Again, he did serve, obviously, uh, uh, um, in in the military. But because he had deserted for the military, he's, he he received a sentence uh, between 1905 and 1913. He claims that during this particular sentence, that he he endured um, uh, torture within the the, the prison. Uh, he develops uh, a hatred and resentment for the world. Um, especially for people who um, are, you know, don't, don't get involved into in crime and, and are, are perceived as good. Um, he develops, uh, you know, these uh, sexual fantasies. He says that um, while he was actually in prison, a lot of um, uh, young men would fantasize and think about, you know, the you know the floor lines outside of the prison and, the, and their lives. But he could not. He could not get to that state without thinking about like uh, his hatred and evil, and also an attempt to try to get back in society. Um, and uh, and then one, once he had these like dark fantasies of revenge, then he could, um, you know, have some sort of uh, sexual release. So this was really someone who um, was distorted uh, from, from an early age. Certainly he had a quite yeah. dark environment, um, you know, not knowing from, from his father, but the dog catcher, but but he clearly seems to also have um, a, a quite an unfortunate life because, you know, he uh, he was actually, not only was Peter Curtin a, a criminal, but two of Peter Curtin's brothers were also uh, career criminals as well. Yeah, it's um, interesting. You see that a lot of these type of families. But then also he's in he's in prison for 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 time. He says he endures, uh, you know, physical uh, abuse in the prison, and that also creates this uh, uh, a sense of resentment, and it, it develops a sort of uh, is this you know the psycho, um, psycho psychosexual hatred, uh, and um, and it's only until um, but just before that prison uh, s s sentence um, that he then uh, receives in 1914, imprisoned for a series of arsons, um, and, and he, he began, he, now, now he serves uh, six years for that, he leaves prison in 1913, and uh, this is um, when he actually commits his first murder, which is the murder of... Uh, Christine uh, Klein.
who that, was that's, uh, that's worth uh, uh, getting into the details specifically of that. But I was going to say before that that I'm a little skeptical of the idea that I mean I don't know that he wasn't tortured, but I'm skeptical of the idea that the prison is where that comes from. I think that sounds to me a lot like Curtin, you know, sort of retro engineering his his narrative in a way that sounds a little bit less abject empathetic than it was and a little bit more like like a supervillain which is how he certainly imagined himself and how he came off to other people i think i'm skeptical in part because you know being in prison was probably considerably better than being in in the the uh, the eastern front at the time you know certainly but also because before he goes to prison, you already see he's killed these two little boys just to see what it looks like to watch people drown. He's one of the, he's also nine years old, I think, at that time. That <laughs> is almost unheard of. You look at other killers who you could compare him to, someone like Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy's first murder, documented murder, plays an adult. He very likely killed a girl in the neighborhood when he was about 13 or 14. That's very, very early. Nine years old. The other thing that's amazing about that is this is before any of the documented sexual perversions that took place. This happens, I think, right around the time he meets the dog catcher. But from what I've read, the the link between sex and violence, and particularly between sex and blood, that's key to, to Peter Curtin's uh, pathology, doesn't develop until his teen years when he was engaged in acts of violent bestiality, like, you know, bestiality where he would try to kill the animal and then he would climax during that. But this, what's interesting is, is that his his murders, his first murders, if he did indeed kill those two boys, as it seems that, that he was telling the truth because they did die on that on that uh, camping trip, um, that that they predate. It, it, this is very typical, I think, you think of extreme psychopathy that he kills out of curiosity, just to see what it looks like, to see what it feels like, mm-hmm. and that predates his sexual dysfunction. Although we don't know where that started, I think it's impossible to tell because of. You know, seeing his mother, uh, you know, raped by his father, seeing it, seeing his sisters. I've heard that it may have been his father brutalized him sexually too. Either way, there may never have been a point where Peter Curtin's sexual development was normal. But it seems that his urge to kill predated even the sexual dysfunction, you know, sexual uh, perversity with the animals, and certainly predated his 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 um his experience in jail. Now it is documented where you have you know like you see with with Edmund Kemper, who we'll get to. Uh, uh, you know, at least a bit in the next episode, is that he was uh, in prison in, in a in a um, I think it was a psychiatric facility with a bunch of you know when he was a teenager with a bunch of uh, hardened sex offenders, and that was so. And people do certainly, particularly that type of person, they do spend a lot of the time they have in in you know in incarceration fantasizing, and I'm sure that did happen, and I'm sure that Curtin did probably notice how different he was than. Some of the other boys, and one, and maybe the historical figure most similar to Curtin is Andrei Chikitilo, the uh, uber predatory killer in uh, the Ukraine in the 1980s. We'll get into it at some point. But the thing is, is that and, and he was motivated by rage at his own impotence, at the sense of his of his emasculation through the, this disorder. I don't know if that was the case with Curtin, but I do wonder if he did have some resentment uh, that he wasn't, you know, wired the same way as other people, but. I, I'm I just find myself just from my perspective. I'm skeptical that that prison was this formative experience because already before then he's engaged in every kind of horrible deviant act under the sun. He's already murdered people, even if you know uh, 
Christine Klein is the first documented one because the, the murder of the two boys wasn't confirmed, but everything that we know suggests that that is what happened. But Christine Klein um, also involved uh, a case where, you know, horribly killed her, but then they, they, they thought that um, he, I don't know if he did this on purpose or not, but he ended up framing her uncle for the crime. Isn't that right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, he left, he left, I think, a, a handkerchief with the initials PK, and that was also the initials of the girl's father, and he'd had this violent argument with his brother. His brother had said, I'm going to show you, and people assumed that he had killed the daughter uh, as a way to get back at uh, Peter Klein, her father, and, and that was, I'm sure that was something that gave uh, Peter Curtin no amount of, uh, no small amount of glee, because he really seemed to get off on just causing carnage and disorder, even more than just killing. He really seemed to get off on the, the social effect he had of his crimes. Yeah, so just to elaborate on the, the Christian uh, Klein killing, so um, it was on a Sunday evening, uh, a feast day searched for a Subaru house. He was looking to raid the house in full struts, broke into the house, and uh, didn't really find anything worth stealing. But then he says... Um, he, he he could see lying there was a sleeping girl of about 10, you know, covered with a thick feather bed. She was lying with her head towards the window. He seized her by the neck with the hands and throttled her for one or two minutes. The child woke up and, um, you know, he, he continued to try to throttle her. And uh, with a small pocket knife, um, he, he tried to, you know, he... he uh, cut the throat of the child, and then he was able to gain his uh, release uh, from 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 that. And after the murder, um, you know, th then there followed a number of other uh, of, 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 of other thefts. But before he goes back to uh, prison, uh, two two months later, uh, again in the course of um, committing a burglary with the aid of a skeleton key. He breaks into a house of uh, in Dusseldorf. This is the Gertrude Franklin uh, killing, discovering a 17-year-old girl uh, named Gertrude Franklin. Um, he manually strangles the girl again. He, and this like he Peter Curtin is kind of the devil here. So he, like he, he he once the once there's blood, you know he can have his uh, sexual release uh, again and. Um, after he kills her, he he watches uh, the carnage uh, as, as the people come in, uh, as the police come in, uh, members of the family come in, and he sort of and he he was at a bar uh, next to um, the to, to the residents, and while he was drinking, he was also drinking in the carnage as well. So he's just like. Yeah. yeah, you know, he like really it, is a super villain. I mean, I think yeah, there's super, but super like there's super villains, like you know, like Bin Laden's a super villain, but this this guy yeah. is like the devil. Like it's like yes, I mean, yeah. I think that, and I think that's how he thought of himself too. I mean, there's something, there are a couple of things that people should understand about Peter Curtin. One of them is that he was someone who I think that he's maybe the closest of any famous killer to a guy like Hannibal Lecter, who's kind of our modern culture's version of Dracula or even of the devil. He, 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 
there's a he you would never guess looking at him and this was partly by design he he, he would he was someone who dressed very well came across as very urbane in spite of his poor background in spite of the fact that you know he was a trade unionist he was a machinist so he could make a living but he was largely a career criminal but he presented himself as as the very model of an urbane uh friendly and um respectable german man uh, you know and uh and that was part of the game that he was playing with everyone so he kind of fits the he and he is very much like like a devil figure i even think of you know for those who are familiar with it of uh tolkien's version of the devil uh morgoth bauglier the, the sort of the great demigod figure uh from his uh, his uh first age mythologist the silmarillion and the thing that that in his mind characterized a devil figure was someone who could not create anything that true you know truly create anything but could only malform and destroy and corrupt and violate and there's something about curtin's crimes where he takes particular delight in targeting what he described as the purest victim that you know a beautiful little serial killers and lawyers like uh, people who don't create anything but just malform Malform. Yeah, I, I know. Well, I mean, there's a reason, you know, people don't like that. But, you know, it's it's it, it, it's this whole thing. He takes particular delight, not just in what gets him off, but in he does some things that don't even get him off. I won't go into detail, but to violate the corpse, to 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 just the stories of Curtin going back to the scene of the not only senior crime, but the graveyards of his victims and then putting his hands into the dirt just to feel you know, like like he's yeah. part, again, like that's pretty to feel common, the power of them, and and you know, just so so that he can gain that sense. Again, I mean, you know, just to go a little bit further into, um, you know, in these years where, you know, like he, his life is as a thief and as an arsonist, you know, before he he's rehabilitated in uh, nineteen twenty one, he he, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he meets a he meets a girl, and um, she's also. Uh, a thief as well and that you know they 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 live together for a little bit before he's imprisoned and um you know they do have sex but he can't get off without causing her harm so that's yeah yeah, that's his psychosocial uh predicament basically and there has there has to be violence or particularly blood involved and and to get him off and um it, it it sounds so it's, it sounds like that he was it but yeah i mean that that is that's a genuine that's a genuine dysfunction and that's something that i think distinguishes like you see like in psychopathy sexualis they talk about all these different deviations but say someone who's gay is just gay it's not gonna unless they have some other pathology it's not going to develop from early childhood and become something else it's not going to escalate and with and one of the things about curtain is is is, is he is he he's always experimenting to see how far it can escalate he really throws himself into this and because he tries throttle, throttling people he tries stabbing them he uses various he uses a hammer at one point you know scissors he's trying yeah to- he's, he's one of the rare killers who changed a lot of the mo's a lot and and actually in a lot of the cases he was really like there's loads of a number of cases, you know. Carl uh, Berg is reading case number forty-four. He he's, he fail. He's failing to kill these people. He's almost like just attacking them, 
yeah. realizing it's not going to work or it's not giving him exactly what he wants and he just like decides to pull back and you know he's one of those guys who almost uniquely this i don't think that i've read about anyone else who really explores their own deviation pattern almost like how like they're like they're investigating themselves it's almost like ooh, let's see what what else what else happens next you know because with a lot of other uh killers they follow a very particular pattern that's established and that's kind of set or and many of them don't know why they do it and i don't know if he knew why but he seemed to to explore and develop his own pathology in a way that is pretty rare because you because normally you know normally when you know what once a killer find you know finds something that that works for them it, it it either stays that way or it changes in ways that they can't control and maybe that's another reason he seems like the devil is that he seems to have this level of the strange combination kind of like the joker in the dark knight the strange combination of impulsivity and control and that seems superhuman it doesn't seem like i mean this is a guy who was profoundly broken but it's also a guy who seemed to have to be in in you know in in, in have this combination of control and uh and being almost out of control that just seems like impossible but you know it, it it's it's very frightening because he does act in a way impulsively but almost in a way that's just he's just curious to see what will happen and that's very typical of, a, of, of someone who's on the extreme end of psychopathy. They'll just do something just to see what it looks like or sounds like or feels like. They have no idea that, you know, beyond that. And, and he does seem to, the whole thing with the, the way he would start fires to just so he could watch people struggle to put them out so he could fantasize that someone might be caught in the fire. It, it, it's just this 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 and you know it, it goes beyond just the the, the a deviant sexuality into a level of you know except that he also got got sexually aroused by that too he was you know not by fire specifically but by seeing people struggle to put it out seeing the seeing the the chaos and disorder and suffering it caused and that seems to be you know it's it, it what's funny about it is is that he has a very broken uh psyche but sexually everything except for normal things uh that would that would you know gets him off um he has just this alternate existence that is not only confounding but at the same time you you know he it it, it a lot of these things that they 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 uh got they, they got him off so hard sexually that that he was uh i'm not sure he would have you know, had any inclination towards a normal relationship, um, if he could, particularly because being a psychopath, he had no capacity for love or attachment to people. So, uh, you know, he goes to prison, uh, for six years stint, comes out in uh, 1921, and uh, he, and now, and actually during the prison, um, people have said that Kutinoy is just quite well, um you, you know he he was, was spent time in front of mirrors putting his uh you know sh shaving his mustache and putting his hats and coats together many uh other criminals thought of him as quite vain actually and mm -hmm. uh, when yeah. he comes out of prison uh he does get a regular job uh, he's a trade union member um he he starts shacking up with a a young woman who um 
actually was a criminal in a previous life as well and you know yeah. they, they do start to have a, a normal relationship in 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 in, in Dusseldorf. but it is in the year of uh, 1929 uh, in Dusseldorf that a series of murders start that will not only sh shock the the community in Dusseldorf but shock the whole of, of, of Germany and throw Germany into a you know to a, a paroxysm of, of you know the, the fear of this of these rising tides of uh, murders people in Dusseldorf believed that they had a uh, not a sadistic murder but many locals described it as a vampire uh, letter, well, he actually was because he did drink the blood as yeah, well. You know, um, after a murder, uh, Peter Curtin would send letters to the local newspaper, especially to the you know, yeah. describing the Gertrude, uh, where the Gertrude's bo bodies was. Um, uh, local newspapers were in a flurry asking the police, um, you know, people wanted to nab this guy. Uh, it, it seems Im Im impossible that, that only one person could, um, be committing these these acts. There was uh, a fake um, vampire of, of Dusseldorf who was claiming that he had uh, committed a, a number of uh, of, the, of these murders at the time, and it, and it was really, really, it was really, really shaking the that 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 community, and and actually sh shaking um, the the whole of of Germany that uh, that this thing uh, this thing could be happening. It it, it really seemed uh, obscene. And uh, and and quite crazy, and and at, at the time, obviously, um, it's it's at the beginning of the the year nineteen twenty nine, uh, in in January and in February that he he continues with his his um, his crimes. There's a number of people who are who are uh, stabbed, and a number of people who are attacked. Some of them don't die, but then there's a Rose Alinga uh, in February. Uh, the eighth, uh, Curtin strangled 19-year-old girl Rosalinka into unconsciousness before stabbing her in the stomach. Um, he, he, you know, he 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 sexually violated her, um, dragging her beneath the hedge before returning to the scene with a bottle of kerosene several hours later, and setting the child's body alight. Um, yeah, he he stabs uh, a, a Polina Kuhn twenty four times in that same period, and then between March and July in nineteen twenty nine, um, there uh, are a number of people who are stabbed, but a, 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 a number of them survive. They give descriptions uh, to to the to the police, but still the police don't really know uh, what's uh, what's happening. It's not until August of nineteen twenty nine where he commits the Maria Hahn murder and um, Karl Berger said that this is a, a really significant murder for understanding the personality of Peter Kutten. Uh Kutten himself has uh, talked about in detail in, even confessing to the magistrate about the, the sexual motive of the crime. So on uh, the 8th of August 1929, he was strolling to the zoo di district. He had intention of committing an offense on a girl at the time. A uh, girl was sitting on the bench. He, uh, he accosted her, sat down beside her, talked pleasantly to her, and made a date for an excursion in uh, in a on the the Sunday. On the Sunday, uh, he 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 got there punctually. So this is part of his new uh, post 1929 uh, sort of uh, suave 
um, you know, calm, sort of uh, lower middle class, sort of normal guy. And, uh, and he, he convinces her. And I think um, that's what uh, is quite different about uh, Peter Curtin as well, because, you know, uh, you know, with a lot of these killings, he, he's, he's uh, spontaneously going up to people and stabbing them or spontaneously breaking into houses and throttling young people. But also Peter Curtin did have the ability to talk to uh, women that he met, uh, like Maria Hahn, uh, uh, sort of seduce them. Um, you know, uh, he he, uh, he whilst he was sitting on the bench, you know, they they did have sex, and then he led Hahn to a big brush uh, near a ditch where they settled down. Uh, it was half past nine. Suddenly, he strangled her until she became unconscious. But um, you know, she, she it, it it took a, a, a little while. After a bit, he stabbed her in the throat with scissors. He lost a lot of blood, but gained consciousness. Um, she uh, repeatedly asking, she repeatedly was asking, uh, hurt him in a feeble voice uh, why he was doing this. He stabbed her in the breast, blow that suddenly pressed the hearts, and then gave her repeated stabs in the breast and head. The process of her dying took uh, several hours. Uh, let the body roll into the ditch and threw branches over it. Then he crossed the meadow and came into the road, and then took and took uh, Han's handbag with, with with him again. So you know, this was, this shows you that uh, Peter Curtin not only was he a killer known for his spontaneous attacks, but he did uh, inhabit this kind of ordinary German guy who was pleasant, who was convincing, who, who, who could create conversation and then could use that to, to for, for killing as well. This is the ultimate extension of his power and control because he, by the way he just, you know, he, he was certainly narcissistic in vain, but the way he presents himself, it might have also made it hard for him to catch, that's a way of shaping how the public sees him. And the fact that he can seduce a woman that way that's an extension of his power because it's only one type of power to be able to attack someone like an animal and just overwhelm them. But that might not be enough at a certain point. At a certain point, he might feel the need or desire to express his power in a different way. And one of the things that really that is striking about Peter Curtin and why he's kind of a fitting character for us to cover is because, you know, <clears throat> I'm borrowing this from another podcaster, Marcus Parks, and last podcast, left shout out to him. But there's a there's a way in which you look at Peter Curtin and he's kind of a combination of several other figures that would be from the late 20th century. And we, we mentioned, I mentioned Chick Cotillo. The thing about is he also mentioned Richard Ramirez where he terrorized this place and the way the cops thought it had to be multiple killers. I think it was Ernst Gnott, the, the, the best policeman in Germany was uh, like Gil Carrillo in the, in the Ramirez case. He, he was like the one guy who thought, oh, it's, this, is, this is one guy. But you, you, you couldn't really blame them for thinking it's multiple killers because the methods are so different. Because the, the, you know, within Peter Curtin's psychology, it's a, it's a totally alien thing for what they would normally be thinking about until Berg interviewed him. And you know, there's, there's an aspect of him, he's like Ramirez and like Chigatilla. There's an aspect of him, he's like Ted Bundy, where he, he's going up and seducing women. And that is something that that in some ways allows him to extend his control because he can toy with them like he can decide finally what he wants to strike like he did with Maria Han. And then he's like Dennis Rader of the Zodiac because he's, he's the way he's playing with society. And in fact, you know, calling him a sadist, he is sadistic, he's cruel, but 
I mean, it, it seems to me he's, you know, he, he, the, the sadism is most expressed in, in the way he tries to torment society, the way he tries to antagonize society by, how, by the methods of how he leaves the crime scenes um, and who he targets. And that to me is, is actually, and I don't, and I'm not even sure it's where he, whether he wants revenge. He just seems to really get off on, and on just causing as much woe as possible in society. And he does seem to have a bunch of the, the defining characteristics of several other really infamous murderers that have yet to, to uh, antagonize the world at this point, but in, in, in the body of one guy, which is an, another reason you, you think you know, he really does seem like the devil. And he does seem to really, really embrace that. I'd heard that he had that, you know, according to him, and we can't, he's a fabulous, so we can't take his account 100% value, but he did apparently say, to some of his victims, I'm the devil, I've done this many other times, you're just one. And, <laughs> you know, and he does seem like if you were to write him as he was, people would say, oh, that's over the top, there's no one that, you know, that, like that. But it, it, it's, that's often not the case. And, and um, it does, I think one of the, I don't remember if it was Maria Hanner, if it was one of the other, um, one of the other victims that he intended, and as did Dennis Rader, would actually thought of doing this too, of taking the body and crucifying it just to get attention. He does, he's, I think there's something strange about, you know, whenever you look at any of these killers who try to antagonize society in this way, there's something of the little kid game in what they're doing, but in obviously a perverse, very grown up way. Cause you know, how little kids like to play hide and seek. They like, you know, sometimes teenagers will leave a flaming pile of dog poo at someone, you know, you know, all pranks that we think of as, uh, you know, uh, playfully antagonizing society. And uh, in the minds of men like this, who are that emotionally deficient and that perverted, I mean, you have to think that that's kind of what they're doing. They're playing a game. You know, Dennis Rader thought he was basically playing a game of, uh, you know, uh, secret agent and spy, some sort of Tinker Taylor type stuff with, with the, uh, the, the cops and the FBI. It was just a game to him. And I think it seems to be just a game to, to curtain it's just that it involves violence of the most horrible kind because to him that's that that's all that's all that gives him pleasure and release and 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 uh and gratification and uh and 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 that's one of the things about men like this is that there isn't a difference emotionally between doing what doing something like that and what would be a, a normal day for other people except for the reaction by society and that's and you know that's I think uh the thing that illustrates his ability to hide in plain sight the most is his capture he sees a a a young girl named maria bollock and she's actually she's just walking on the street and then She's accosted uh, by a, a different man, and the the man wants oh, yeah, to. This go... right out of a horror movie. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> the man wanted to go into a dark park with the girl. She resisted, and Curtin sees the opportunity to approach the couple. Uh, he asked him what he meant to do with the girl. Uh, the 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 man replied that the girl had no lodging and that he proposed to take her to his sister, but um, you know he wasn't convincing um, that. Um, you know what he assured the the girl maria that 
that uh, that the street was in a completely different neighborhoods and that the the man was was lying. Uh, the girl agreed to come with Pisa Carson to the 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 different street around about eleven o'clock. Um, uh, Carson took uh, her, her to his room. Then she suddenly said that uh, she didn't want. Um, to you know, to have, have sex, and uh, here um, uh, she, Maria was seized by the neck, pressing her head down back very hard and kissing her. Um, you know, he forced himself on her. Afterwards, um, when he asked whether he he, uh, she, he had hurt her, she denied it. Um, uh, actually, P Peter Curtin uh, was think thinking. Uh, not actually not of of of, of killing uh, this particular uh, victim, and um, strangely enough, it, he did ask her whether or not uh, she remembered uh, where he he lived, but she said no, and um, so um, she, and so he he actually let let her go, and um, Buckingham. Um, he didn't think that Buckingham would be able to find her way back again to the apartment, um, and so he didn't really think much much of it. Uh, he, it, it certainly weighed on his mind, and uh, and uh, and uh, Maria didn't actually go to the police. So you know, in, in that intermediate period, it did seem like perhaps he had gotten away with it. But he talked to a lady. Um, you know, he talked to he, he talked to his wife about it, but uh, but Maria Buckin talked to uh, a, a young woman about it. The young woman went to the police. The police questioned uh, Maria, and um, and then that's when uh, Peter, the the police were led to Peter Peter Curtin's uh, apartment. Peter Curtin wasn't there at the time, but he had seen that the police were were coming, uh, and uh, that the things were closing in on him um you know he, he he told his wife that he was being suspected of um of of, of a crime she, she had lived a quite difficult life and and, and proposed that they both uh, commit suicide uh he said that no um that he was actually the vampire of dusseldorf uh, she 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 couldn't believe it she knew that obviously that he had been a criminal uh, in the past but um, couldn't quite think of her of, of him as the vampire of Dusseldorf. He confessed. Uh, he told her about the the Maria uh, Bullock situation, and uh, and t told her to try to go and get the reward. Actually, you know, so one uh, sort of sh a shred of um, good nature that uh, he he exhibited towards his wife. And um, eventually, she, uh, she called the the police. They came. They came over, and then he was taken into to custody. Although this is something you also see, we see this with Dennis Rader, David Parkway, other sadistic killers. Their family. It appears on the surface that their family is is the one repository of their good nature, but really, it's it's the, the way that they're setting up their family. Is part of it, their family is kind of their possession. Their family is. And it's it's another extension of their control is to is to dictate even positively what happens with their family. And they, in their minds, their family 
is 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 kind of like their dog. It's it's you know it's 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 some it's some other thing that they possess and that they should they should have the final decision about. And uh, the interesting thing about his wife was, I read she killed a previous husband, um, and that she I think this is a very German thing. She thought that she should she 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 knew there was some there was that that Peter Curtin was not the most pleasant man. But that they were both criminals, and that if if their marriage wasn't great, then she was being punished, and that was what it was going to be. But she never imagined he was the vampire of Dusseldorf. How I guess how how would you have, unless you knew? But um, one last thing, the Mirror Budlik thing is, is that he comes in. It's an even more of an ultimate form of control. He comes in as the White Knight, right? Because there's another yeah. guy who's creeping her out. Who yeah, the other guy <laughs> actually been dangerous to her too. But he comes in as the as, as oh man, let me is this man bothering you? And it is that's the kind of thing you think you'd only see in a movie. But yeah, but, it's a it's a good premise for uh, for for a ninety minute movie, I think. Definitely. Yeah, I mean it, it is. And it, yet another thing that happened, uh, which we didn't touch on, was that um, they at one point thought they had uh, the, the vampire Dusseldorf and they arrested this guy, Johann Strasberg, I think his name was. Yeah. He was just, yeah. He tried to strangle. He was dangerous. He tried to strangle a couple women and, uh, you know, while on the street, but he was, he was kind of a mentally challenged guy. Yeah. Carl Carlberg saw him as mentally challenged. Didn't really believe that, that he was the vampire of Dusseldorf because he was seeing a pattern of quite complex, uh, sadism, but the police did think that, um, that he was always want to have their man because they wanted this nightmare to end. Yeah. It, again, it's like the movie, the police, you know, they just want the, the nightmare to end. They want the, the people of Dusseldorf and the, the, the people of Germany to be, to be happy and to get, to get this, you know, off. And then here's this annoying, you know, uh, medical psychiatrist saying, well, no, this is not the vampire of Dusseldorf. This is more, more complicated than you think, you know? Yeah, and, and and he was and when he was arrested, uh, he and, and also even when he was executed, didn't show any fear whatsoever. I mean, he, he I mean, I, I, maybe that was a front, but he seems to be one thing you see with really extreme examples of psychopathy and social tendencies is is that sometimes even a, a lack of capacity for fear, and given a different personality, that might be very useful. But in here, it's just terrifying. Well, interesting. This interesting thing about his capture is that the defense psychiatrist believed that he was insane, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the medical um, psychiatrist, uh, Carl Berg, who was assigned by the the government uh, to assess him, didn't think that, that he was insane, but there was a defense based on insanity that was made and that Peter Curtin was going on you know tacitly going on along with a very new a very new defense because the first time you have an, a successful insanity defense was in the 19th century the mcnaughton case in uh, in england was the first case of successful case of not guilty of reason of insanity was someone who was i think trying to assassinate a major political figure but they determined i think quite correctly that he was uh that he was deeply psychotic i think i wonder with Curtin is is that this is a case where you're starting to really get into the question of what sanity is because you know he seems to be a textbook case of what um that british physician said is moral insanity but he's clearly not psychotic he's clearly aware uh, able to uh, uh, be aware of it, of what he's done and aware of the world in a logical way 
but he's so deeply disordered in other ways. It seems it seems what Berg was 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 determining was what we consider legal insanity. It can't you know is someone you know uh, psychotic or not? Is someone mentally challenged or not? And uh, yeah, so so Berg was thinking well. Um, the Pisa curtain has a has a, a a depth of accuracy about incidental details about the crimes that he he's committed, and he, you know he's very conscious of them, so that he can't actually be uh, insane. He 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 was he was as he is now, as in like there's a there's a there's a continuity there. So he's not not insane, even though. Um, Karl Berg did see that that Peter Curtin was psychologically abnormal, and he also he wasn't he was wasn't he also the forensic the medical examiner in the case yes. too. So he would, he would have been more intimately aware aware of the details of Curtin's killings, the goriest, most horrible details than anyone. Yeah. Um, so it, it, as part of his book, uh, The Sadist, he put down a lot of the you know the the specific and in some ways banal details of uh Peter Curtis murder and the you know the blood work and things like that so yeah he was intimately um knowledgeable about that as well he, he, I must say I must say that whatever you can say about Carl Berg he, he's a man clearly was a man of incredible fortitude because I've known people who have done uh who are pretty tough people who've done work you know forensics consulting and have been just absolutely scarred just having to read the, the police reports. And then when you consider that Berg didn't just do that, he probably wrote the reports, he, he examined the bodies, and then he also does this exhaustive book length examination of the killer himself. I mean, we, we can, you, can, you can contest his definition of sanity, although in a legal sense, I understand why they'd have that because you don't want to have a society say it's, you know, you know, you, 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 people like Peter Curtin are the most dangerous people that you can possibly imagine in a peacetime context. But, you know, you have to say that he had a remarkable sobriety and inner strength to just be able to do that. Oh, and, yeah. And, and clearly, you know, Carl Berg, you know, is someone who's fascinated by by this because, you know, he, he was he was a little bit taken by um Peter Curtin. He he saw him as someone who was entertaining, who was um, who That's had also not uncommon detailed incidental knowledge of the crimes, who was well read on theories about um, predetermination, uh, you know, theories linked to Lombroso, and uh, they talked about about this and. Uh, and so he, you know, he really enjoyed. I mean, so it's not. It's, it's clear from from well, reading. Some of the these statement. guys are actually, uh, uh, at the very least, superficially pleasant to be around. Certainly, Curtin was, and he and, and he would have found him interesting. You see this with um, the FBI guys interviewing Edmund Kemper in the in the sixties and seventies. They really found him pleasant and engaging. And the other strange thing is, even though Curtin was someone who claimed to, you know to test society and be a war in society. I think it was, that was mostly kind of fabulism and stuff, but in, in, you see this Richard Ramirez as well, even those kind of guys have a fascination with cops and with criminologists. And if you love power and, and control as much as they do, you're going to be 
at the very least fascinated by men of power and authority and distinction in society. And conversely, someone like Berg is fascinated by, by Curtin because he is he's groundbreaking territory at the time. Berg was a Freudian psychologist, but even Freud didn't want to do with that kind of stuff. It was too much for him. He, he said, you know, he said that uh, I he, that it would that to look at you know sadists and practitioners and necrophilia curtain was not that, but they, they, that, that these this was too dreadful a topic for him. But you know, but uh, Berg it seemed really did want to uh, want to understand a guy like Curtin because he's kind of in some ways the golden goose. He's he's a, he's a a way into the understanding that kind of person. Because yeah, and, um, and although we've talked about, um, you know, the, the obsession with German culture at the time of this um, thinking about a genetic explanation of these kinds of crimes, like, uh, but did really see that, and he perceives uh, Peter Curtin to have an, an, an abnormal psyche and constitution. He, he, he saw him, this, this sexual impulse was not, was not normal. He said he felt that Peter Curtin was born with a predisposition for deviation, and um, and then obviously his early experiences conditioned him for these kind of ab abnormalities, um, you know, and and he, he felt that these 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 kinds of fantasies that he he, he was having, and obviously the early experiences with with um, drowning uh, the, the boys spoke to a. Uh, 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 an essential, you know, like an essentialist characteristic of, of of Peter Curtin, as different from the average person, sane, in the sense that he's legally sane, but distinctly different. Yeah, I mean, and I think when you take someone who was born with, with you know, with those distinct differences, I'll just say for my part that I tend to go towards nature over nurture, just because. It take you know it's very you can't you can't mimic the qualities that people are born with. You can take <coughs> people and 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 have them grow up in the same terrible environment and have them turn out in different ways because one of them is born with that distinct difference. There was a, a study that they followed these two young boys who grew up, I think, <coughs> in the inner, inner city black community in the United States. One of them went on to become a uh, sort of a student council straight A kind of guy. Another became a vicious gangster, and they had the similar intelligence. They had they grew up in the same uh, sort of terrible environment, but one of them was born with the predisposition towards psychopathy and violence, and the other one was not. And there's something about that. I mean, clearly Peter Curtin's childhood is one of the worst on record of any serial killer. That's saying something because they tend to have terrible childhoods, but. He clearly was born, and you know, in some way, very distinctly different. Because you see, the easy, remorseless, in inhumanly curious propensity to violence at such a young age. It, you know, at nine years old, one of the youngest on record, and you know, there isn't really anyone else I can think of who compares in that respect. <laughs> and, and of course. Um... It's to be said, but you know we we spoke spoke about this at length already. Um, Karl Berg understands uh, Peter Curtin's 
psychosexual motivation. Um, Peter Kirsten obviously talked about his prison experiences. He talked about yeah. his childhood. He, he he listed things of you know needing um, pain and blood specifically for a kind of uh, sexual release. Um, the enjoyment of throttling of victims, stabbing struggling to enjoy uh intercourse without throttling and uh you know and then this these kinds of um fantasies of of pain and destruction widespread pain of destruction uh in society that that he was building up and 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 that allowed uh carl berg to build up uh a quite interesting and and and, and in some ways path-breaking study of a statist uh you know like uh, Carl Berg wasn't able to say um, put together a new concept, uh, you know, to describe something new, a new a new phenomenon that uh, had never been seen before, you know, in in the analysis of uh, criminals in the nineteenth century and minds in the nineteenth century, but in the depth and analysis that he brought to the to the recording of Peter Curtin and, and, and who he was. Uh, this was distinct and 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 different and, and new and part of uh, you know you know going back into the 19th century the the German increase in um, thinking about cr crime in terms of uh, statistics and then thinking about crime in terms of uh, trying to cap categories and 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 theories and you know there was there was essentially a, a development of, of criminology that did take place uh, you know it, it moved from the Britain towards Germany and and the Germans were doing significant work here and and uh, the analysis of Peter Curtin is is certainly a footnote uh, in that development as well. It's, it's definitely an advance. And what's interesting is is that um, how it builds on and then goes out from some of the other understandings of that. How you how you can see how a few it's a few years before the um, the publishing of Harvey Cleckley's The Mask of Sanity, and you sort of wonder how much someone like Curtin influenced that too because of how he creates this 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 carefully tailored visage of himself as this kind of regular you know <clears throat> urbane uh, neatly dressed german man this you know he it's not just it's this fine tuned mask and what berg is seeing obviously is <clears throat> not is is not just someone i think he calls him variously a sadist and the king of the sexual perverts. I think at one point, and to me, I think I think he's what's much more definitive about Curtin is that that you know his the sexual deviation, the perversion. Because if you look at, at at what I would consider the most classic example of, of of a sadistic killer, what they tend to be is much more calculated and reptilian and consistent, and um, and and highly uh, controlling of how their crimes are documented in. In videotape or audio or diaries or, or photos, whereas Curtin, it, it, you know, he's he he's um, he's controlled in terms of how he presents himself and how he's trying to get the public to respond, but he's also very um, improvisational in a way that you don't normally see with sadistic killers. But he is uh, he is a sadist when it comes to his relationship with society, and he is someone who startles for the just sheer catholicity of you know the of, you know the versatility of, of his criminal life all the different types of crimes he does and also um this this the, the particularly the, the the way that 
he sexually responds to blood is something that you do see in some other criminals, but it is the most extreme possible thing uh, because he he doesn't always need, normally with a sadist, they get off on, on the response of the victim to what they do. But with Curtin, it's, it's, it's how, you know, he, he got off on, you know, seeing blood gush out of the necks of animals. He got off on, um, on all kinds of violent acts on other people and on just, just exerting any form of violence and observing any form of destruction. And I, I wonder if, you know, it's blood, but it's also seeing people struggle to put out a fire. It's, it's just seeing anything destroyed or losing its, you know, it, it's, you know, anything or anything taken apart in any destructive way. I mean, I don't know, was, was, did Berg think that, that the key was the destruction or, or, the, or, or, or that it was, or it was literally the blood itself? I mean, I, what was his thought on that? I think Berg was a focus on uh, the, you know, the, the sadism yeah. yeah, and and then 10% 90% was sadism, 10% was, was revenge. So it was really about causing pain and causing harm is, is key. Uh, you know, with, with with blood is probably the most um explicit example of, of, of being able to cause that is probably why that was so significant for uh Curtin's own reaction. But I think it was a sadism uh, that that was central. And then obviously at trial, they try to prove uh, that Curtin um, is indeed uh, sane by uh, focusing on the premeditated aspects of uh, the killing, and um, you know the, they, they they focus on as as Carberg had stated on the the accuracy and the depth of um, Peter Curtin's memory, showing that he was conscious of uh, the crimes that he, that he was committed, and and that they were. Uh, premeditated uh, cross-examination. Peter uh, Curtin's defense attorney did challenge the expert's conclusion, arguing that the, the sheer range of perversions his client had in, engaged in was tantamount to insanity. However, the doctors and psychiatrists remained adamant um, as to Curtin being legally sane and responsible for his, for his actions. Um, and uh, and obviously he was uh, convicted of um, uh, the, the the crime and and uh, on the evening of the first of July, nineteen thirty one, Curtin received his last meal. Um, he had a bottle of white wine, fried potatoes. Curtin devoured the entire meal uh, before requiring a, a second helping. Um, he did that when he was telling his wife about the crimes too. He ate her. They went out to lunch and he ate her lunch because she was too distraught. <laughs> you know, he was like, he's like, well, if you're not going to eat it, I'll eat it too. I mean, he seemed to be utterly uh, unable to be, uh, to be uh, shaken in, in himself. He, 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 you know, it's another thing that makes him seem so extreme is that he, you know, he lived free or died, you know, he would have yeah, been, he's, a, he, uh, he certainly he is an example. He certainly is an example of, of when Desaad talking, you know, you know, his misanthropic view of, of the human potential when removed from any constraint. Certainly, Peter Curtin would be a a, uh, a a prime example of that because he 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 right he 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 did it his way. If you want to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, genuinely, he genuinely, you know, <laughs> as horrible as it is, you know, to. Uh, and so, at, blue eyes. 
six o'clock on the morning of the, the 2nd of July, 1931, a piece of was executed by Karl Gropler with a guillotine in the grounds at a prison in Cologne. Um, he walked unassisted to the guillotine, flanked by the prison psychiatrist and, and, and a priest. Um, shortly before his head was placed in the guillotine, Curtin turned to the psychiatrist and asked the question, tell me, after my head is chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck? That would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. When asked whether he had any last words to say, Curtin simply smiled and replied, no. <laughs> I have to say, that has to be the, the, the most outlandish and memorable last word. man i you know we made we actually made the story up this never happened uh i think audience will appreciate our, our creativity and, and our minds and stuff please don't report um, us because you know for, for for you know for being for being you know, you know yeah for being, for being scary i mean it's hard to make anything like that up that is gotta be in the you know number one with a bullet the the, the strangest most unhinged thing anyone has said before <laughs> you really have to you really do have to ask what is sanity because he's legally sane but no person living on planet earth you would you you would think would ever say something like that but the funny thing is of course is that when he asked that question the guy who you know you the the i guess it's the executioner who or maybe whoever said that he probably would be able to hear his, the blood gushing from his neck because apparently when you're beheaded, your brain remains conscious for a short time after that. Uh, oh. We're checking by guillotine because guillotine is so clean. There's a, there's a, what, you know, Charlotte Corday, I think her name was, was she, when she mm -hmm. uh, assassinated uh, one of the- Ah, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, she, she, apparently when she was guillotined, the guy who, chopped, who operated the guillotine picked up her head and slapped her and she spit in his face or something. I think I read that or reacted in some way um, because the, 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 the brain ma maintains some function after, you know, the, the, which, normal, which is a horrible thing to think about. She killed that journalist, didn't she? Yeah, That's, yes, uh, she did. She did. Yeah. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember his name. You know more about the French Revolution than me, but he was a particularly uh, influential and consequential member of the revolution of the, mm -hmm. you know, the reign of terror. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it is it's a normally a scary prospect the idea that your head would get chopped off and that you would remain conscious of it divorced from its you know from from your original its original place on your body you know that's just sitting there on the ground but Curtin thought that sounded like it would be the the best pleasure <laughs> he could possibly imagine and that and that really yeah and you know with this obviously it's, it's, uh, we're thinking about um ideas of uh, predetermination and um, is there, you know, something within someone is, is essentialism versus the environment or, or essentially the environment versus morality and, and, and all of this. And, and to the extent to which that's in, ingrained in German culture, especially in the Weimar period, in, in the late 19th century, in the Weimar period, leading into Nazi Germany and, and the negativity of that kind of perspective and what, what it did and what it created uh, even in terms of the Holocaust, but I think here, you know, like there is some sort of middle ground because clearly, like Peter Curtin was fundamentally different. Take away his environment, he was fundamentally different from most people. There's no um, doubt about that. You can look at his early childhood. There's no doubt. Yeah, and he and he lived a a a, a life that 
you know, with, with, the, with, the, with the choice set that most people just don't have, can't begin to understand. And, and you know, and, and I, I appreciate that he had to be gotten rid of, you know, but I, I, I don't know if I can say that I can judge uh, Peter Curtin uh, that much. And certainly he had some some control, but... I, I I simply do not occupy the same space as Peter Curtin uh, psychologically and probably in in the more essential way, and 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 that 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 I think that makes you know sometimes on this podcast it makes it it makes it difficult you know because well, it's also I guess it's something that both of us can be truly grateful for that we're not. <laughs> like, and I think that's one of the things people say true crime is, you know, it's, it's morbid. It is to a degree, but it also gives you some perspective on your own life. And much as it sucks in many ways some of our lives a lot of misfortune that we struggle with that you know you it, it's 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 a it's it, on one level you look at someone like Curtin and he's truly bound by nothing because of his psychopathy but on another level the one thing he can never be is a normal human being with affections and attachments to other people he's he's set apart by his psychology by his early development and all he can be is in some ways be the devil and, all, and, that, and, 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 that, and so in some ways, I mean, I don't know what role his own will or his own decision-making had in it. He clearly embraced it. He clearly is a part of it. But it's hard to know. When you look at Curtin, everything possible went wrong, starting from genetics onto his early childhood and everything throughout his, his life. And, and, you know, you do wonder about the question of insanity. Legal insanity is a kind of an instrumental thing because it's just a way to say, you know, we can't, if someone is completely out of touch with any notion of reality, like if they think that they, you know, like Herbert Mullen killed 13 people in California to stop an earthquake, you know, clearly paranoid schizophrenic, but you also look at the profound emotional deficits of someone like Peter Curtin. And in some ways that's just as, as deranging as, as a profound psychosis. And so, I mean, it's hard to know what is, what is sanity and, what, and how should it be considered in, in, by society? Because, you know, is moral insanity as profound a deficit as a, as a mental insanity? Or is it maybe even more profound in some ways? Because, you know, there's a lot of our brain that's devoted to, to our emotional connections with other people and that's as just just like there's a lot of our brain that's pro, that's about processing the environment around us and uh a, a deficit in one of those is is either way it's going to be really profound no no absolutely absolutely yeah you know it's it, it's it, it's it, it's as extreme a, an extreme a case as usual when it comes to someone being that different from people um and yet as the series is going to go on, we're going to get into people who, in some, who at least at least as far as we know, did even more damage to society than Peter Curtin, uh, because it, you know in the modern era you have suddenly the proliferation of highways and you have, um, you have uh, you know the way that technology allows people to become highly mobile and become. Um, to become not just local killers, because Peter Curtin did most of his damage in Dusseldorf, which is a kind of a, just a smaller city, uh, industrial hub in Germany. And, uh, 
hard not to associate the name Dusseldorf with, you know, images of people of, of, of tubas and make sausage making. It sounds kind of like a pleasant place, mm -hmm. but you know, it's it, but it, it, as we go on, we'll get into uh, in, into situations and to killers who traverse entire countries, uh, either by train or by car. And you know who who were able to extend their radius of damage beyond a city, and 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 were often very difficult to keep track of, um, and who may have have a lot in common with someone like Peter Curtin as well. And it's also important to note that the the theory, diabolising culturum theory, you know, in the period that we are in our podcast, that hasn't really happened yet in in America in America. That's right. Right now, the you know the time of Peter Curtin and into the 1930s, American FBI is focused on you know, gangsters, focused on people who are you know robbing banks and things. There isn't this focus on serial murder. There isn't uh, a statistical level an understanding analysis of it. It in some ways, unlike in Germany, where you have. Carl Berg writing the status where you have yeah, a focus and, and on you have a model that fits in some ways. That you have a, you have a model coming out of World War One. You have this understanding that exists in Germany. America is almost is existing almost before the fall, in in a in a period where you know these concerns aren't resonant yet. Yeah, America had no idea what was coming because the Depression era is a much more easily comprehensible way of understanding uh, uh, crime from the perspective of law enforcement. And if you're looking from the perspective of social science, you, you, you look at it very differently too. Uh, whereas in Germany, which is where we just covered in Weimar Germany, you have the, the, the devastating psychological and economic effects of World War I combined with this sense of fear and insecurity in society losing its moorings and with this, this uh, manifestation of primitive barbarity in rural areas. You know, you you and and this you had you had these this convergence model unique to Germany that happened in Germany and that and that birth as you said uh, an understanding of criminology that that where deviant crime fits in that. But as you said, in the United States at the same time, in general, what you had was gangsters. You had you had crime families. You had you had the, you had the kind of world that birth the birth like the Batman comics. People people always trying to understand when ba Batman's supposed to take place in the '30s. It's it's you know colorful criminal figures like um, Free Boy Floyd and John Dillinger, and these were kind of classic figures and mafia guys. And, and you had when you and and you know bank robbing and also kidnapping people. It was a very much a, a a milieu of criminality in America that fit the idea of the of the comprehensible crime. Someone killing for greed or for Revenge, or for these things that are that are that, that are very much uh, not the case uh, with these these the the the, the psychodramas with of serial killers, and in many ways Germany was prepared by this for this, but America should have been reading Americans should have been reading Karl Berg um, rather than you know because what ends up happening after uh, the war is is you have a a, a very different America, a very different. Uh, type of crime and a very different origin point of criminality, and that's what we're going to be getting into in this series because, because um, Amer the, as you say, American uh, criminologists and cops were completely caught flat-footed, uh, you know, it, by what was to come, starting in the late '60s and going on through the early '90s, and 
even a criminal like Charles Manson, who in some ways was a depression era type criminal, a pimp, a gangster, you know, he, he people couldn't understand him because of the, the, the idea of the cult-like association. And, and in many ways, what happens in the, uh, what we're gonna cover is going to be um, a uh, United States uh, criminology world and police world uh, being hit by something they did not see coming and that maybe they would have been better at if they were paying attention to uh, to Germany in, uh, before, uh, before, they, before we got into war with them. No, absolutely. So uh, on our fourth uh, episode of the series, uh, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be focusing um, now in the late 60s and the early 70s with uh, Ed, Ed uh, Kemper. But um, I, and in general, hope... the beginning of FBI profiling and, you know, and Ed Kemper is patient for this as well as uh, Jerome Brutus. And so we hope that um, that through listening to this episode, you've got, got an understanding of uh, not only the history of uh, serial murder, but also the history of uh, an attempt to understand serial murder and also the history of a culture like ours uh, in, in the West um, that um, encountered it and tried to understand it and um, and and obviously uh, engaged with some of the most graphic and, and most difficult uh, cases. They probably, you know, the Peter Curtin case, the, um, the cases in, in, in the Inquisition um, that uh, reverberate uh, th- throughout history and, and, and uh, are some of perhaps some of the most darkest moments uh, on, on a broad scale and, and in, you know, within the little town of uh, town and city of, of, of Dusseldorf. So um, see you on the, on the next pod- podcast and uh, and um, yeah, uh, good, um, just from, from me and um, from uh, Simone, um, this has been a great podcast and uh, uh, goodbye. Goodbye. Long breath before the plunge.